Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In Pump, A Natural History of the Heart, we join zoologist Bill Schott on a tour from the origins of circulation, still evident in microorganisms today, to the tiny, hard-working pumps of worms, to golf courts, cart sales, uh, size rather hearts of blue whales. We visit beaches where horseshoe crabs are being harvested for their blood, which has properties that can protect humans from deadly illnesses. We learned that when temperatures plummet, some frog hearts can freeze solid for weeks, resuming their beat only after a spring thaw. And we journey with Shot through the human history, too, as philosophers and scientists hypothesize, often wrongly, about what makes our ticker tick. Shot traces uh, humanity's cardiac fascination from ancient Greeks and Egyptians who believed that the heart contains the soul, all the way up to modern-day laboratories where scientists use animal hearts and even plants as the basis for many of today's cutting-edge therapies. Bill Shutt is a zoologist, author of six nonfiction and fiction titles, including the New York Times editor's choice, Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History. He's emeritus professor of biology at Long Island University and is a longtime research associate at American Museum of Natural History. Bill Shutt, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Nice to be here, Tom. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, so I want to have you tell us uh, a bit about uh, the story you tell us uh, early in the book, I think the, the preface. Uh, your visit to see a blue whale heart at a museum in, uh, in Canada. Yeah, in Toronto at, uh, at the Royal Ontario Museum. Um, my friends that worked there in the mammalogy department had been getting a lot of, of, of questions about whales over the years, and, and, and a lot of them went along the lines of, um, what's the largest heart in the world? And they'd answer, well, a blue whale heart. How big is it? Uh, it's the size of a car, and, and, and on and on. But in reality, nobody had really seen uh, a blue whale heart, at least scientists, hadn't seen it up close. In, uh, in 2014, a really unfortunate thing happened. Nine blue whales died. And, and, um, and most of the times when, when it's been difficult to study them, one of the reasons, not only because they're so large, is because when they die, they sink. So if you were a whaler back in the, uh, you know, the 18th and 19th century, these were not the right whales. And then the right whales were whales that when you threw a harpoon in them, they'd float. Um, so so it, not a lot of people knew very much about whale hearts, but two of these whales that died, and we think they got caught in an ice flow in, uh, up in Newfoundland, and, and they, um, they, they were recovered. They, they came ashore at two small villages, and, uh, and these scientists decided that they would try to, um, uh, try to answer these questions about the size of the heart uh, with some facts. And, and so over a, what turned out to be a five-year period, they recovered these hearts and then preserved them and then sent them, at least one of them, and sent them over to Germany to be plastinated. Now, if you've ever seen the exhibit like, um, you know, you see these exhibits like uh, live bodies, the exhibits where they take a, a, a human and literally plasticize him, turn him into, in, into a, uh, like a synthetic polymer. And this is what they did with this massive heart. But there were all sorts of neat surprises along the way. The, the heart weighed 450 pounds, but, but that was a lot smaller than, than initially they thought it was going to be. And so there were, there were all of these great questions about you know, what is this blood vessel coming off this thing, and why is it smaller than we thought? You know, initially they thought it would be the size of an SUV, but it turned out to be the size of a golf cart. And to me, that was a really interesting question. Um, 
So yeah, and 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 I went up there and saw the thing, and it's really impressive. And just to hear the story about how this took place, they had the you know this was a massive, massive whale, ninety ton whale. They were literally lowering people down into the uh, the into the chest cavity to get to get this heart out. And then when they got it out, there was how do you preserve this thing? You know, back when we were in school, we worry if we splashed a little bit of formalin or formaldehyde on ourselves and and here they were using thousand gallons worth of the stuff to preserve this um uh, this heart before it could be uh because before it could be plastinated mm-hmm. so there were all sorts of interesting questions that that came out of it and there are still a, a lot of questions that that that, that haven't been answered I want to get into some of those questions uh that, that's amazing so uh just a couple of uh, parentheticals right here. So technicians uh, climbed inside the whale, right? Mm-hmm. I, guess, I guess they had to sever the heart and then shove it out. Is that what happened? Yeah, they had to sever the heart. They had, then they had to, to to separate the ribs to get it out. You know, so they had to literally use the, the equivalent of jackhammers to jack the ribs apart so they could get this uh, heart out. But you know, they were really surprised when the thing came out. It, you know, if you go to a butcher and you see a, a beef heart, it, it, it sort of it, it sits there. It's got structure to it. It looks like a, a heart. Same with a human heart. But this thing collapsed, and it, you know, when I saw pictures of it, it reminded me of a soup dumpling. And so why was that the case? You know, so they, they've hypothesized that this is because when these whales dive really deeply, sometimes thousands of feet, uh, that the, the heart literally collapses because of the pressure. So this is something that's evolved over uh, over millions of years for these things to be able to dive to those depths. Mm. But they were really surprised at the size as well. Yeah. I want to get into that, but uh, you, you do some asides in the book. That, uh, the footnotes are great uh, and sometimes <laughs> very funny. Um, so uh, on the way to talking about how they removed the heart from this blue whale, you talk about the whale explosions. And we, you know, <laughs> yeah. it was all in the news for a while there. Uh, they'd, <laughs> they'd, you know, whales would die. They'd try to transport these whales somewhere, and, and in the process, I guess, gases build up. Oh, yeah. Um, some spectacular. If you, so if you, were to, if you go on YouTube and you just look up exploding whales, you'll see stuff that will just you know, completely freak you out. And, and like you said, the, these are gases that build up inside. And then in some unfortunate circumstances, people will find a, a dead whale on the beach and start jumping up and down on it. I have no idea why you might do that. Um, but they, they have exploded. Uh, I mean, dramatically exploded. One of them all being carted through the streets in a, 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 a city in China, and just blew pieces of rotten whale all over the block, all over cars, bystanders. You know, pretty grim stuff. Hmm. So uh, they were able to by by actually extracting this heart. They were able to answer a question: How you know? How large is the heart of a blue whale? Um, it, you know, large, right? It, actually, size of a car, not as large a car as we thought, but comparatively, well, small, small, uh, a, a I, small I'd car, say golf cart, about four hundred pounds. Oh, I see. Yeah, so smaller than maybe we would have thought. Absolutely, and and so the question is why, and and what they. So, for example, if you had a if you had a uh, a ninety ton hummingbird, for example. Something with a really high metabolic rate. It, it, it's, it, it, its wings are beating 80 times per second. Um, if you had a 90-ton hummingbird, it's, and, and you looked at its heart and sort of scaled the heart up to blue whale size, it would probably be around 3,000 pounds. 
So here is a, a so, so the so the whale heart is about eight times smaller, and 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 the question is why, and and we think it has to do with the fact that that a, a hummingbird heart beats at twelve hundred and sixty beats per minute, and and that's in order to supply the muscles that are flapping the wings at eighty times per second, and 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 taking away carbon dioxide and supplying oxygen, um, and. And really the only way that you can so, – so we think that that's probably about the limit that a heart can beat. It's about 1,200 – think about that, 1,260 beats per minute. If you look at the heart as sort of a, a mechanical device, we think that's about as fast as it could possibly – any heart could possibly beat. So the only other way to get more blood to those muscles that are demanding oxygen and nutrients is to increase the size of the heart. So that's why a hummingbird has such a, a large heart. Uh, a whale, on the other hand, its heart is beating maybe eight times uh, uh, per minute. And so the oxygen demands are, are, are far less, so the heart can be smaller. And that's, that's what they hypothesize. Yeah, both those species are quite amazing, aren't they? Whales in their own way and, and hummingbirds. J- just observing a hummingbird, it's, it's just, just fascinating. Oh yeah, incredible stuff. And 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 if you're looking at mammals, shrews would be uh, the equivalent of that. High 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 metabolism, um, incredibly high. Um, you know, the, a shrew is a little mousy looking thing, but it's it's really an insectivore, not a rodent. You know, their hearts are beating at crazy speeds as well. And and this is why they do nothing. You know, they eat. They they just run around and eat. And then when they're done eating, they eat more. Um, because they've got to supply the fuel for that that high metabolism, and, and hummingbirds in the same way. Mm. That's why they're feeding on. Uh, I mean, um, pure energy literally is is uh, uh, what they're getting out of these flowers. Uh, people may be curious about uh, the, one of the examples uh, we used in the introduction, which, by the way, is uh, furnished by your publisher. So they they found this fascinating. Um, <laughs> so uh, frog hearts, mm. uh, they can freeze solid and then <laughs> resume beating. Yeah, if you if you were to take, I mean, we've all seen these terrible pictures or, or heard stories about people who freeze to death and they're, they're literally, you know, that they die from being frozen. Um, there are some ways around that in the animal kingdom. One is to is to sort of move away from the area that's cold, right? Bats do that around here in New York. They they, they will migrate to places where where it's, where they can get insects and where it's not cold, um, or they hibernate. You know, they slow down their, their metabolic rates. Uh, but, but really, a, uh, one of the most extreme examples is, is, um, uh, you know, is a frog that's found in, in places like, uh, like Canada. It's a wood frog. And, and what this thing does is the problem with, 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 with your body under cold temperatures is that the, when the water freezes in your cells and your tissues, it, it literally forms these sharp, jagged edges and tears up the tissue, tears up the cells. And frogs have a way to release a substance that causes water to leave their cells and tissues and accumulate in areas where it's not going to be a problem, like their abdominal cavity. So if you were to open up one of these frozen frogs and it, it, you know, it, it, it looks like a, uh, you know, a slushy inside its, its, its abdomen. Um, but that Ice has not formed in a place where it's going to cause a problem. So then when the temperatures warm up, the ice melts, the, the, the water moves back into the tissues and cells, and, and the frog hops off slowly at, at, at first. Mm. That's amazing. Um, 
I want to have you talk a little about invertebrates. Uh, you, mm. you you make a comparison, vertebrates, invertebrates, and invertebrates. Uh, the, the the blood, the circulatory system uh, works in a in a very different way. Yeah, I, I mean, first of all, when you talk about invertebrates, you're talking about a vast number of different types of animals, and and many of the. I mean, there are, there are many many different types of circulatory systems. So if you were to say, uh, if you were to take a, an earthworm and, and say that it, these little pumps that it has, a series of pumps that, that move a liquid through its body that, that, that some might, might call blood, if you were to go to a cardiac surgeon or a cardiologist and call that a heart, he might have a problem with that because he's got specific types of criteria that, that he needs to use to call something a heart. And it has to do with, for example, the lining of the heart has to be this certain types of of tissue. Well, in reality, if you look across the animal kingdom, there are all sorts of heart-like pumps that that do the same type of of job of of moving a liquid through the body. Sometimes that liquid is called blood. Sometimes sometimes it's called hemolymph. Um, but but like you mentioned, um, for example, in insects, they have these little pumps. Now, this is not a worm. Uh, the insects have these little pumps that, that move a liquid around, but it doesn't carry oxygen. So it's just carrying nutrients and waste. So therefore, it does not to need to be as, as you know, it's, it's not doing one of the big tasks that a vertebrate heart and circulatory system would do. But um, so... So, so this is one of the key reasons why you don't, you, you're, not, you're not able to, there's no such thing as an insect the size of Mothra. When I was a kid, you know, the Godzilla movies with this gigantic moth. That, that thing couldn't exist because its, it's, it's respiratory system is efficient enough to get oxygen into it, but it's not efficient enough to supply oxygen to something so massive. Um, but back to worms, you know, worms have a closed circulatory system like, like, like vertebrates do, which means that the blood never leaves the circulatory system. But other invertebrates, animals without backbones, they have what's called an open circulatory system where the blood gets pumped out, moves through blood vessels, but then empties out. It comes out of the circulatory system and enters into these chambers. So instead of having capillaries where, where gas exchange takes place at a microscopic level, we've all heard of these before, uh, the, the blood gets pumped into these chambers called hemocoeles, and it bathes the tissues that surround that chamber, and that's how the, the tissue is supplied with the blood. Uh, then, then the blood leaves the chamber, enters back into sort of a low-pressure system that takes the blood back to the heart, and the whole thing starts again. But it gets the job done. That's, that's one of the key uh, themes in this book is that, you know, we think of ourselves as being, you know, humans, everything about us is so superior. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you look at the animal kingdom, well, they've got this. Inf- no, it's not about uh, inferior structures or inefficient. It, th- these are structures that have evolved for millions of years in these creatures, and they work perfectly well for what they're being, what they've evolved to do, what they're being asked to do. Um, so, so I really like to get this point across that you know we, we need to stop looking at our at our bodies, which you know our hearts and circulatory systems are wildly complex, which which leads to a lot of problems, um, and and some of these simple systems just they don't, you don't run into those problems, but and they work perfectly fine for what they're being asked to do. Let's take a break. Uh, We're talking with Bill Shutt. He's author, most recently, of Pump, A Natural History of the Heart. That's out in paperback and available uh, now. 
um, and we'll have more following this brief break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Bill Schutt. He is uh, a zoologist, author of six books, including nonfiction and fiction. And the latest book is Pump, A Natural History of the Heart. Uh, that is out and available uh, now. Uh, so, Bill Schutt, um, you, um, very interesting, you review, uh, it, it ends up being kind of a, a review, at least in this area, of, of the scientific process as it worked. And, you know, the scientific process bumps along, right? And so there were a lot of wrong uh, theories about how the heart and the circulatory system uh, work. I'd like to have you talk a little bit about Galen. Um, mm. This is the, the, the if you, people don't know, well, you can explain, but uh, this is the four humors, right? And um, Yeah. Well, he cribbed that from the, you know, the, the Greeks who cribbed it from the Egyptians. So, so really Galen gets you know, uh, he gets pe- he gets pegged with uh, with with the, the four humors: blood, um, blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm as being these substances that are incredibly important with regard to just about everything you can think of. Uh, but it re- he really didn't come up with it. And, uh, he was um, influenced by the Greeks. They were influenced by the ancient Egyptians. You know, the the, the Egyptian medical information was really held in high esteem by the Greeks, and then and then the Romans picked it up. And, and Galen was a first-century Roman physician and, and philosopher. Um, and it's really impossible to, to understate his impact uh, because he wrote about three million words that were preserved. And, and, and we don't, we're not positive whether he wrote them all or uh, it, it was you know, his followers. But in any event, he was not able to do work on the human body because of uh, of, of laws that existed. So he did a lot of his of of his writing about about animals, and 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 basically, you know. So this is how the human human body works, and and got a lot wrong. Um, the problem is, is that. That, that Galen's three million words were not translated in uh, after the fall of the Roman Empire. They were not translated in, into Latin, which is back then was the language of scholarship. And years and years later, it was translated into Arabic by by Syrian Christian scholars. And and their translations of Galen um, reflected the fact that they were Christians. So 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 it really gave Galen's work a. a, a a Christian flavor that hadn't been there when Galen wrote it, and the church became, and the, the church in Europe became infatuated with this translation, and and literally declared that that Galen's writings were divinely inspired. And so, for approximately fifteen hundred years, this had devastating consequences because you could not really experiment. Uh, you could not. Uh, you, you'd have to worry about, uh, you know, about um, uh, being uh, being persecuted if you were to come out and say anything about uh, about the human body uh, that 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 was contradicted Galen, and so 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 all sorts of stuff um, dragged on and 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 caused the fields of medicine to sort of stagnate for. Um, uh, the number I use is around 1,500 years until we started to move away from him and experiments started to be done and people actually came out and said, well, you know, Galen might have been wrong about the fact that uh, that, that we should bleed these people in order to uh, to cure them. 
Mm. I was going to ask you, is this where bleeding uh, comes comes from? I, I'll, I'll just preface this by saying, I, I you know, it, it, I read a lot of biographies, and it, it, through certain periods, you get to the part where the where the subject, of the biography, gets uh, sick, and uh, oh no, they're going to come in and bleed him or her, and that's yeah. that's not going to go well, right? Yeah, I mean, the one that I, that I keep going back to is George Washington. He wasn't president anymore. In 1799, he had a sore throat, and, and they wound up bleeding about 40% of the blood from, from him over the course of a 24-hour period. He wound up dying. Um, and, and so I always found that story fascinating because, because it was so well documented. And when I got to the end of the story and I read, well, you know, they had a, they had a hearing about, about his death the, the next year. You know, you know, so I'm thinking to myself, all right, well, here's where they nail these guys who, who bled him um, so extensively. And, and you, when you read it, you're, you're reading things like, oh, you know, well, they should have, they, they, they did mess up, but they, they should have bled him closer to his throat. Or, you know, they should have packed his feet with bags of salt and you know they should have given them you know more emetics so that and you and you're going well these are the top physicians of the time and and this is what they believe this was you know this was to in their mind the height of 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 the fields of medicine you know this was arguably the most famous person in the world um and 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 they were interested in in what happened why he passed away um but it to me it's you know this was the state of affairs Back in you know this is the early the early nineteenth century, late eighteenth century, and uh, and that continued on, and and a lot of it had to do with the fact that 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 the church had a real grasp on on what what could be uh, written and 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 what could be practiced. Before we get to uh, later on in the program, we'll we'll talk about uh, you know a little bit about cutting edge research and what scientists have gotten right. Is there anything that stands out to you that uh, that the scientists got wrong. There, there's a, there's a lot there, right? But oh boy, oh jeez, uh, what they got wrong. Well, um, yeah, I, I I mean a lot of what they got wrong had to do with the fact that they didn't know anything about uh, about bacteria, about 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 microbes, and so uh, you know this is why you bleed somebody to balance these four humors. Uh, and in reality, you you just don't. There, there was no knowledge of the fact that there were pathogenic organisms that that caused many many of the problems that they were bleeding people for, uh, or um, you know seeking to balance these uh, th- these humors in, in in ways that just made no sense if you look at it nowadays. But I mean, to me, that's the one that really jumps out. Is we just didn't have it. You know, we didn't have microscopes and. We didn't really know that there were disease-causing organisms. Mm. Um, if you just joined us, we're talking with Bill Shutt, uh, author most recently of *Pump: A Natural History of the of the Heart*. I was surprised to learn that uh, they were doing transfusions earlier, <laughs> earlier, much earlier than I thought. Yeah. Um, well, at, but the transfusions weren't. You know, they found that they tried to transfuse blood that it would clot, and and so that that became a, a real that became a mess. So, so they would transfuse the material that they thought would uh, would be helpful. So they they you know they they transfused milk, they they transfused beer, ale, uh, you know, wine. Uh, these are things that w- were transfused, and and then once they started to. Uh, to have blood transfusions, they had no idea about blood typing. You know, the ABO blood groups weren't, 
They weren't figured out until the early 1900s. And so, you know, this was a real crapshoot. If you were transfusing the blood from a, from a donor uh, into a recipient, if it was... Uh, if it was, if the blood was not compatible, if the blood type was not compatible, you were going to probably kill that person. Uh, and but um, yeah, it's it, it's it's unfortunate. And you know, for a long time, for a long time, they they, they stopped transfusing blood because they they they, they saw the, the the consequences. They just didn't know how it happened. Um, you talk about heart transplantation, some of the history there, and, and the fact that uh, out of the very sad circumstances, tragedy, we, we can learn a lot, right? And so the case of uh, Baby Faye, I think a lot of us remember this uh, in the news. Yeah, this was, uh, this was an, I, I just found this story to be heartbreaking and, and, and fascinating at the same time. And, and, and a lot of, you know, it, it, was, it was tragic, but, but positive came out of it. And this was 1984, and, and, a, and a physician by the name of Dr. Leonard Bailey, who was a, a pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon in, in Loma Linda University Hospital out in California, he had been doing, uh, experimenting with transplants from, uh, from young baboons uh, in, into animals like sheep. And, and, and the reason he was doing this was because back then there were no donor hearts for, um, for, for babies. Uh, or it, it just didn't exist. And so a lot of infants, when they were born, you, you just had to, you, you could leave, leave them in the hospital and watch them die, or you could bring them home and watch them die. But, but it, was, you know, it, was, it was pretty much of a horror show. So what he wanted to do was to try to um, see if he could transplant a, a, a heart that was very similar to a human heart, which was a, a young baboon heart, into a human and, and, and got a chance to do it. In, uh, in in 1984, and this was a a, a desperately ill two year old girl who's uh, she was uh, named by the media Baby Faye, and um and the, the the to make a long story short the the surgery was was a, a complete success a, a complete success but. It, not be, and she died, which is not, not a complete success. Twenty days after the surgery, but not from organ rejection. Not not because it was a baboon heart. The baboon heart was working really well. The problem was is that the baboon had type AB blood, and baby Faye had type O blood, and they thought that baby Faye's immune system was immature enough that they could block it. They could they could take its immune system and and de- sort of deactivate it with with a drug known as cyclosporin. The problem is is that 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 they were not able to do that. Uh, that and and so she died from an autoimmune response. Her own body developed antibodies to her blood, and the, and and baby Faye died. But when they did the autopsy, the heart worked great. It's just that it's just it's really unfortunate that that the heart that they picked was not a match blood wise. So 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 this got massive media attention. The the whole thing. You know, the 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 parents were hounded. Uh, he was hounded. It was he, you know, people said it was you know just a publicity stunt that he did. It, it, that's just not the case at all. And one of the things that did come out of this was that there was now an, a, 
uh, an awareness across the country and probably the world that that there was a need for donor hearts of of, of infants and and so he never had to do that again he never had to transplant a uh, a primate heart into an infant in fact he started to get human hearts and you know a, a year later in 1985 he, he Bailey performed his first successful heart transplant on a, a heart uh, on a baby that became baby Moses, and, and that baby's still alive today. So a lot of good came out of it. Uh, but um, you know, they knew from the start that that it was going to be that it was going to be a, a difficult surgery. And understand uh, breakthroughs in surgical techniques as well came out of this as well. Oh yeah, no doubt. Right. Yeah. That, 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 from what I understand, that surgery was a complete success. It's just, uh, you know, the, over the course of almost a three-week period, the baby fate had this immune response, uh, an autoimmune response uh, that, that, that wound up killing her. I'm not hearing, for a while, you were, you were hearing about these uh, interspecies uh, transplantations. Mm. I'm, not, I'm not hearing about this uh, anymore. We're not doing them? Yeah, that, well, I, I mean, just recently there was a pig heart that was transplanted into a human, and, and, and what, what they really need to do is that there, there are techniques now that can knock out, and, you know, when you hear about CRISPR technology where you can actually, you can genetically change a, 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 a tissue so that you're not going to get the sort of uh, responses that the body is defending itself against a foreign, uh, literally a foreign object being planted in its, into, a, into a human. So, so that is certainly one aspect and one possibility for, for dealing with the fact that we still have thousands of people die every year waiting for a transplant, whether it's a heart or a, or a liver or, or, or lungs. Uh, and, and so there are all sorts of ways that, that modern researchers and modern scientists are trying to get around that. And one of them is, you know, one of them is animal, uh, is animal organs. And, and so, um, so as I said, they're trying to, for example, prevent these organs from transmitting uh, uh, diseases from, uh, for, from a pig, say, to a human. And, and that is, that, that's problematic. That's how a lot of viruses jump from, you know, we're seeing that it likely happened with COVID. It jumped from one species to, to, to humans. It happened with AIDS. Uh, it, it jumped from, we believe, chimpanzees to, to, to humans. Um, so, so there is that avenue of research. But there's also avenue of research where, you know, the, the Israelis are, 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 are computer printing hearts to try to do it that way. While, you know, the, I, I dealt with and, and, and went up and met uh, Dr. Harold Ott at, at Harvard, who's trying to grow hearts from donor hearts. And this, I, I just thought, I was blown away by this. So if you think about tissue typing as a problem, you, you, you know, you, you can't just take anybody's heart and put it into you because the, you know, they've got to be the right tissue type, the right blood type. But if you take a, a donor heart, someone has passed away, and you strip away all of the cells in that heart that your body would reject if you were to transplant it into that recipient, and all you leave is a, is a connective tissue, sort of a skeleton of a heart, um, and, and, and then you take cells from the recipient, the person who's going to get that heart, you can convert them into stem cells, this technology exists, and then stimulate those stem cells to become cardiac muscle cells, and then embed them into that, in, into that model that you had left, that scaffold of connective tissue. Now you can grow a heart or a, or, or a lung or kidneys to order for a recipient. Now that is, to me, is, is amazing. And I, and I, I asked Dr. Rod, I said, how, how long do you think this is going to take 
before we're doing this on a regular basis, he said 10 years. And that was two years ago. Mm. Oh, that, that is amazing. Yeah. Let's take another break. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk about heart as metaphor. You talk about this in the book as well. Uh, we're talking with Bill Shutt, uh, the author of the newest book, Pump, A Natural History of the Heart, which is out to, in paperback right now. More following this. You're listening to Access Utah. Our guest for the hour today is Bill Shutt, a zoologist, author, and author most recently of Pump, A Natural History of the Heart. So, Bill Shutt, uh, as a tease before the break, I want to have you talk about uh, this metaphorical understanding of the heart, the idea that uh, the heart is the seed of uh, emotions, right, the soul, intelligence. Uh, when did this uh, start? What, how far can we trace this back? We think that this idea of uh, cardiocentrism um, originated with the ancient Egyptians, and they didn't really think much of the uh, brain, uh, but but when they preserved, uh, when they, when they mummified someone, they preserved the heart, and and that was so that it could be weighed against the feather of Mat, who was the goddess of of truth and justice, and 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 and, and she would decide if the owner had lived a virtuous life. Now, as I mentioned before, the the Egyptian Egyptian medicine was was held in high esteem by the ancient Greeks, and as was this idea that 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 the heart was the organ associated with with the soul. And so Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle um, believed that not only was it the, 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 the seat of the soul, but, but the, the seat of intelligence uh, and emotions, like uh, including love. This was passed on to the Romans, uh, and who added their own twist to it. And at the same time, this medical information that I mentioned before was being passed down, this idea that the heart was somehow central to, uh, to things like intellect and the soul, it was also passed down and picked up by, uh, by artists. Um, there was an explosion in, in, in the arts of poetry and literature, and, 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 and a lot of it pointed to this idea and, and supported this idea that things like emotion, especially emotions of a, of a romantic nature, um, we're, we're, we're based on, uh, we're based on the, on the heart. Uh, it is, you know, that then this transfers over to literature and, uh, we have it today, mm-hmm. right? Uh, sure. Uh, the symbol of uh, Valentine's day is, is the heart, right? That continues. Um, you mentioned, uh, something in the book, um, something called vena amoris. This is a Roman idea. And that continues to today, right? In at least uh, the, a vestige of this. Yeah, the, uh, the vena amoris is, was supposedly a, a, a blood vessel that ran from the fourth finger of the left hand right to the heart, and that, and that became the, the location of our, our, our wedding ring. And, and, and that, that just further cemented this idea that the heart was the, was the seat of emotion. Um, and, and so, yeah. The we, vena amoris was, the, was the, the name for the vessel, the, you know, the, the, the vein of love. Right. So that's why, that's why, that's why the, uh, the fourth finger on the, on the left hand is is mm-hmm. important yeah yeah um, supposedly their anatomists could trace a, a vessel that 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 began at the at, at the fourth finger of the left hand and and could would go directly to the heart yeah uh, you've you've said that there there are still a few people who believe the the heart is more than a pump that there's more to it than that that's be the minority right yeah Today. i mean there are folks who for example had a heart transplant and then they have uh, you know the, the they you know they've they've actually re- 
written uh, uh, books about how they picked up the traits of the person whose uh, whose heart they received. And um, you know, all I can say there is that is that you know the mind is a, is is an incredibly complex thing. And 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 not saying that these people don't have these feelings. It's just that when it comes time to to, to show evidence of this, and that, uh, really, it, to, and to, from what I can see, it, there's no, you know, there, there's no evidence that there is some type of, uh, you know, picking up the, the the traits or the likes and dislikes of uh, uh, of someone who's transplanted their heart that a recipient is going to is going to somehow, um, you know, like the same food all of a sudden, mm. uh, which has been which has been claimed by by folks. Mm. Um, there, there is, I guess, think some evidence, at least belief in the, the kind of the reverse, our, our emotional health mm. affecting our physical heart. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's, you know, it, it's funny because I got done writing all of this stuff about how, you know, there's no science to this idea that the heart is the seat of the soul, blah, 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 blah. And then, and then you run into this, um, to this phenomenon that, you know, the, 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 the sort of non-technical name for it is, is uh, broken heart syndrome, and it was you know, the Japanese who discovered it. At least their physicians named it, uh, called it Takatsubo syndrome. And, and, and Takatsubo are are these pots that they fishermen lower down, and and uh, an octopus will go into the pot, and then they'll hold the the pot up. And when they looked at it, it that that pot looked like what we're now going to talk about, and and that's the fact that. In in the 1970s and 80s in in Japan, patients were showing up in in hospitals, and they were exhibiting um, all of the all of the characteristics of the symptoms of, of of having a heart attack. So they would, you know, they would they would, you know, they would do photography and they would and 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 look at these people, do X-rays and things like that. And what they found was that that their their heart the 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 left ventricle the main pumping chamber had this resemblance to these um uh, to to these octopus pots and so that's where takatsubo syndrome came from but the thing is is that all of these well the majority of of these patients were all women and they had all experienced recently experienced uh, something in, incredibly emotional, like they lost a husband, or they lost a job, or they lost their house, and so that's where this concept of a broken heart syndrome um, came about. And uh, to to cut to the to the chase, what we think is happening here um, is that the body has, you know, if you get up in front of an audience, right, and you don't like to speak in front of an audience, all of a sudden you have this kind of sympathetic response where, you know, your hands start to sweat and, you're, and you start to shake and your, your heart rate goes up and all of these things that, that occur when you get put into a stressful situation. You know, I used to tell my students uh, in an in a auditorium, if a, if a bear breaks through that door and, and, and starts running down the, 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 the middle of the auditorium, you're going to have these physiological responses. Everybody's, you know, your, your, your pupils are going to dilate, to let more light in, to, in a sense, tell your brain how I can get out of here as quickly as possible. Blood will be pumped to your limbs. Your heart rate will go up. Your respiratory rate will go up. Well, these are the things that happen in, in a stressful situation. But then when you see that it's a bear, it's actually a guy dressed in a suit, then, then all of this stuff sort of like, you know, all of the 
sort of sort of backs down and 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 shuts down, so your heart rate goes back down, and and all of these things that 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 take place. Your digestive system starts to digest your Cheerios again, rather than sending all that blood to your either your brain or your legs. And what we think is going on with with these victims of um, of broken heart syndrome is that that uh, that, that sort of turning off the sympathetic nervous system does not happen, and so they're getting stress hormones pumped into their uh, in, into their blood for long periods of time, and those do damage. Now, the good news is that this usually passes after a couple of months, and and so it's it is a you know it's a disease that is still being examined, and we don't have all of the answers, but but we do believe that it's um that it's because of um uh, of an overproduction and and a long production of, of stress hormones that are, are usually not usually not produced for such long periods of time. Before we leave this idea of, uh, of you know, the heart is the center of emotions, um, I just sort of pass on this is very funny. You, you've posed uh, some, uh, some ideas of, uh, say, literary titles. Uh, if, if, we, uh, if we had the brain as the center of emotions. For one example I like a lot, Joseph Conrad's a masterpiece would uh, be called Brain of Darkness. It doesn't work quite as well. Yeah, I, 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 we're going to leave the artists alone, and I, I don't think uh, scientists really don't have a problem with that. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Uh, by the way, if you just joined us, Bill Schutt is with us. He's author most recently of Pump, A Natural History of, of the Heart. I'd like to talk uh, a little bit, about uh, seven minutes or so left. I'd like to talk uh, about a couple of uh, ethical considerations um, and uh, one is uh, testing of animals, right? Um, there's a movement away from that. One example uh, is the case of horseshoe crabs. Why don't you tell us about this? Yeah. Um, okay. So, so I, I grew up and lived on Long Island for most of my life, and and I used to wonder that during the summer I would see pickup trucks that the open pickup truck, and the back of it was just like stuffed with horseshoe crabs. And I wondered what was going on there. And, and when, I, um, when I started to write this book, I was looking at horseshoe crabs for a completely different reason and, and, uh, that, that, that I go into in the book, but it's not even worth getting into here. But what I discovered was that, that, that these creatures, which have been around for about, for, for about a half billion years, and for example, if you see, and you hear this term, a living fossil, and it's thrown around. But if you see, see fossils of a horseshoe crab from 500 million years ago, it looks like a horseshoe crab today. So this is this is a real card-carrying living fossil, and and what was discovered was that they have uh, in their blue blood a substance that 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 clots when they when they come into contact with uh, with certain uh, organisms like like bac- like certain types of bacteria, and you got to think about how a horseshoe crab makes its living just sort of plowing like a little helmet uh, through the through the muck for its entire life, um, unless they come up towards the shore once a year, and then they mate, and then they go back down into the deeper water, and they're plowing through the muck. And, and so this substance also, it, it forms a clot, and it, 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 it forms a clot if you, if you damage that horseshoe crab. So if the horseshoe crab gets hit by a, by a propeller, uh, there's some serious wounds that, that the horseshoe crab's able to overcome because of this substance in its blood. And scientists in the 1970s 
discovered that if you were to isolate this substance from from horseshoe crab blood, that it would clot in the presence of uh, of, of endotoxins of, of 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 substances that are produced by bacteria like like E. coli under this big heading of gram negative bacteria. Uh, is and E. coli is probably the one that people are most familiar with. Um, and these are bacteria that are. They're, they're found in if, – if you, if you go to a hospital, right, and, and they're going to sterilize equipment, they're going to sterilize bedding, they, you know, all of these things that are sterilized. When you sterilize a subst- a, something, a material that has these bacteria on it, you will blow them apart. You literally explode these little bacterial cells. They release, as, as it's really part of their cell, these substances that we call endotoxins. Because if they get into our circulatory system, they can kill us. And so tests have been developed with this substance that has been isolated from horseshoe crab blood so that you can test catheters or you can test batches of medicine or you could, you could test uh, surgical equipment for the presence of endotoxin. And so industries have developed th- that harvest these horseshoe crabs. Unfortunately, a lot of the times when they come into shallows to mate uh, and then bleed them, and then by law they're supposed to be released, but studies have shown that many, many, many of them die. So in a lot of places now, horseshoe crabs are now endangered because of the fact that, uh, that, that they're being, in a sense, overused and overharvested. And, uh, you know, we think there's a way around that. There are ways to produce the substance now without having to, to drain horseshoe crabs. Uh, but unfortunately, this was just starting to get popular when COVID hit. And, and then, you know, you go back to your tried and true techniques. And these were uh, all of these places that were selling the substance that was derived from horseshoe crabs. You know, and, and so that the, the um, you know, the, 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 the stuff that was produced in the lab without horseshoe crabs, that, that sort of got pushed to the back burner. So the hope is down the road that, that the use of horseshoe crab blood and having to kill them and collect large numbers of them goes the way of the sort of the rabbit test from the 1950s. Yeah, certainly the, the way we hope it goes, right? Um, and by the way, kind of full circle, we're, we're bleeding them this, for different reasons, right? Uh, yeah. But, and then releasing them. I got, uh, Hope springs eternal, right? You, you think, okay, you can bleed them, put them back, and it'll be fine, but it, apparently it's not, right? So No, because just... just you know, it's pretty sad, and I go into it in the book. You know, it's not like they're, they're taking a certain amount of blood. They, they, they hang these things upside down and then let blood drip into a into a bottle until they stop bleeding. And and then, the, you know, these things are getting carted around without refrigeration. There's no water, and then they get thrown back in the in the um, back in the ocean with forty percent of their blood drained out. It's no surprise that a lot of them die. Mm. Um, I want to maybe uh, quickly, if we can do this quickly, just a couple of minutes, uh, another ethical issue. that There's a lot of history in the book as well, and a lot of related issues uh, uh, to, to the heart and circulatory system. Um, there's a scientist in the name of Werner Forsman um, who, uh, you know, had to, was responsible for some breakthroughs, won the Nobel Prize, but he's a Nazi. 
Yeah, that, the, I found this to be an incredibly interesting story, one of the, one of the most interesting. And, and, you know, that is the idea that this, uh, this young physician um, developed cardiac catheterization. And, and, and he saw that, you know, the problem is, is up until catheter, cardiac catheters were, were invented, you had to go in and open up the, the thoracic cavity. You had to you know, break ribs in order to go in and do anything with the heart. Or if you were giving an injection, through the through the between the ribs and into the heart, you know, there's always the chance that you're hitting a lar- a vessel and you know a, a coronary vessel on the heart. So he just he'd seen a catheter that was that was used that you know, they had a, a a horse and they ran this catheter up in through the uh, the jugular vein and into the uh, into the horse's heart in order to measure its its blood pressure inside the heart and he said well why can't we do that uh, with humans and so he found a really thin catheter and this is the this story is much more interesting the way I'm describing it now but wound up with a really small gauge catheter that and and wound up putting it into himself ran the thing up through a a vessel a vein near his elbow uh, into his own heart and then had pictures taken of this um, and prove that you could do this, that you, that, that you could run a catheter into, into, uh, into the human heart to deliver substances, for example, without having to uh, go through the ribs. And yeah, the problem is, is that he had joined the Nazi party in the, in, in the 1930s. And, uh, you know, back then, trying not to make excuses for him, but this was, um, you know, this was something that a lot of people did. And there was no evidence afterwards that he had done anything except try to save people's lives. It's not like he was a war criminal. No one ever said that he was. Uh, but he had to pay his dues when, uh, when the war was over. And, and finally got the recognition that, 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 that a lot of people think he deserved, but, but certainly uh, in a career that was tainted by the fact that, that, that he was a Nazi Party member. We'll reach the end of our time. Much else in the book. Uh, you'll have to read about uh, a lot of other fascinating things. Uh, flesh out story of Werner Fossmann. Also, uh, posthumous diagnosis for uh, Charles Darwin. There's a, there's a lot of interesting stuff in the book. The book is called Pump, A Natural History of the Heart, the latest from uh, Bill Shutt, and it's out and available now. Bill Shutt, thank you so much for the conversation. A pleasure to talk to you, Tom. Take care. Take care. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah Today.